Hi, this is Sandy, and you're listening to Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. It's Sunday, September 24th, and this is your Sunday Sermon. We're continuing in our sermon series, Lessons from Nehemiah. Today in part 7, we're going to be looking, starting at Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 1, and then going over to chapter 8 and finishing in verse 18. We're going to talk about yet another important topic, which I've titled, Demolishing Misconceptions and Myths. But before we get to all of this, let's take a moment and pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you for this amazing opportunity we have to hear from you once again. And Lord, thank you for being the opportunity to be the mouthpiece for you today. Lord, I pray that what we hear is clearly from you and that you'll find us doers of this word. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen and Amen. So far in the first half of the book of Nehemiah, chapters 1 through 6, the focus has been on reconstruction. Now the emphasis shifts. We move from rebuilding the city to rebuilding the people. Chapter 7, verse 1 begins with Nehemiah stating that the gates and doors had been put in place, so the project of rebuilding the wall was truly complete. Then in verse 5 it says, So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. The rest of the chapter lists the names and numbers of all the people who returned, 42,630 in all along with large amounts of gold, silver, and garments for the priests. Q, chapter 8. I read an article this week about a young missionary from the U.S. to the Philippines. She had only been on the island of Cebu for about 10 weeks and was learning the language and beginning to understand the culture. She wrote about an experience she had while attending a recent church service there. This is what she wrote. I heard the pastor announce that we were going to take up an offering to purchase some sin for another developing church. The pastor made this compelling announcement. Their church building is nearly finished, and they are in desperate need of more sin. If you would like to make a donation to the purchase of more sin, or if you would just like to go out and buy sin to give them yourself, let us know as soon as possible. If you aren't going to be here next Sunday, we would love for you to leave your donation for sin with us. That would be fine. I know the Lord will bless you for your generous gift toward this project. The young missionary continues to say, at this point, I was nearly unable to contain myself. I leaned over and whispered to a friend, so you can actually go out and purchase sin here in the Philippines? What a shame they don't have enough sin in their church already. Later on, she figured out what was going on. In Cebuano language, the word for tin or metal roofing is sin. They were, in fact, needing more tin or more metal roofing to complete the roof of the new church building. My guess is that most of us have plenty of sin to deal with in our lives, and we certainly don't need to purchase any more. What that young missionary was experiencing in another culture is very, very common. Due to the difficulty in understanding a new language, she was faced with some misconceptions. Just as there are many misconceptions when trying to learn a new language, so too many of us have had misconceptions about the Bible. Here are three of them that come to mind. Number one, it's too confusing to read. Number two, it's too boring to study. Number three, it's impossible to apply. As you'll see shortly, these myths will be demolished in Nehemiah 8. 
I want to use these myths or misconceptions as our outline for today. The first myth is the Bible is too confusing to read. In Nehemiah chapter 8 verses 1 to 8, we're going to see that the Bible, instead of being confusing, is actually a book that you and I can comprehend. You and I can understand it. The second myth is that the Bible is too dry and boring to study. What we'll discover in verses 9 through 12 is that the Bible is anything but dull, and you can rejoice in it. The third myth is that the Bible is impossible to apply. What relevance does a book this old have to do with my life and world today? Well, verses 13 through 18 show us that there are many ways that we can apply its truths, and you can obey it. So let's break these myths down a little further. First, the Bible is too confusing. Take a look at verses 1 through 8. We'll start with verse 1 here. It says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. Now, the Bible is not a magic book that changes us just because we read it. God's word must be understood before it can enter the heart and release its life-changing power. The word understanding is used six times in this chapter, which shows that the Bible is not meant to be confusing, but simply to be understood. Ezra was the ideal man to conduct this outdoor Bible conference. He had come to Jerusalem 14 years before Nehemiah and was a priest, scholar, and teacher of the law. Ezra 7.10 gives us some insight into what kind of man he was. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. In other words, he was committed to personal study of the word. He looked for ways to apply the Bible to his life that he taught to others as well. This is one of my favorite verses in Ezra 7.10. I consider it a personal challenge because I want to do the same thing. I'm committed to study and personal application so that I can teach the word accurately and with integrity. They came together on the first day of the seventh month, which was the Jewish equivalent to our New Year's Day. During this month, the Israelites celebrated the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. It was the perfect time for them to get right with God and make a fresh start. Notice that this seems to be a spontaneous gathering. No invitations were sent out. No public notice was given. They came together as one man, eager to understand God's word. They met before the water gate. In the Bible, water is the picture of the word of God. Continuing in verse 1, instead of waiting to hear what Ezra wanted to preach on, it says they told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law. Like an impatient audience at a concert, the people were probably chanting, We want Ezra! We want Ezra! Teach us the word! Bring it on! The book of the law was the Torah, which contains the first five books of Moses. Next, verse 3 tells us he read it aloud from daybreak till noon. This means the people listened to the word of God over six hours. And they didn't just sit in their pews. It said all the people listened attentively. And we know from verse 18, this continued for a week. There's no greater thrill to a preacher when the people listen attentively to the word of God. When Word of Hope Christian Church first started in November 2012, I remember sitting with our leaders and talking about preaching. They said that the church needed biblical preaching, and they're absolutely right. I thank them from the bottom of my heart, both the past and present leaders, for their attentiveness and compelling desire to understand God's word. In an effort to follow Ezra's example, we're going to have six-hour services starting next Sunday. How about that? Just kidding, folks. In verse 4, we read, Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion so they could see and hear him better. 
I've seen some churches in Europe that have really high pulpits with 20 or 30 steps leading up to them. They've probably got the idea from this very passage. Thirteen men stood with Ezra on that platform while he read. In verse 5, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them, and he opened it, and the people all stood up. In other words, the people all honored God standing up. They knew this was not just a man speaking, but they were about to hear the very word of God. Now, if you look at verse 6, it says, After Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, all the people lifted their hands and responded. What did they say? That's right. Verse 6 says, They said, Amen and Amen. No one fell asleep in this service. Everyone listened attentively and everyone responded. Then they, as it says, bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The people went from sitting to standing. Then they raised their hands, shouted out their agreement by saying amen, and then bowed down and worshipped by putting their faces on the ground. The anticipation of hearing the Bible in a way that they could understand totally gripped them. They were locked in, focused, and ready to hear from their great God. So in this spirit, for those of us who are alive today, and perhaps those of you at home that are listening or and or watching this video, let's stand as we read the rest of this chapter. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 7 through 18 reads, The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jozebad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, This day is sacred to the Lord our God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. The day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their roofs and in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them. From the days of Joshua the son of Nun until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. Now, if you're standing, please be seated. In verses 7 and 8, the Levites join Ezra in helping to instruct the people. They made it clear, in other words, and they gave meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Do you see that? Their task was twofold. First, 
They had to translate from Hebrew into Aramaic because these languages would have undergone some changes since the day of Moses. By the way, the reason we need new translations of the Bible is not because the Bible changes, but because our language is constantly undergoing change. Second, they had to spell out the application so that the listeners would know how to flesh out God's truth in their own lives. They probably mingled with the people and, when there was a break in the reading, answered questions and told them how to apply the law. There was both a public proclamation of the word in the large assembly and a face-to-face -face interaction of a small group. Myth number one is that the Bible is too confusing to read. What we learn from verses 1 through 8 is that the Bible is designed to be understood. Let me give you two hints to help you better comprehend the Word of God. First of all, find a contemporary translation and read a chapter of the Bible every day. I would suggest starting with the Gospel of John in the New Testament. Grab a notebook and write down one verse that impacts you. Saturate yourself with Scripture. If you're not sure what Bible translation, you could give me a call or check with your local pastor. I'm sure that they will be able to help. Secondly, be attentive during the Sunday preaching and midweek Bible study times. I know some of you use a Bible app and you're on your cell phone and that's great, but I also encourage you to bring your literal Bible. It's easy to follow along. You can even take notes and yes, you can write in it if you'd like. And then continue reading the passage you're hearing today during this week. As we've just shown, myth number one is false. You can understand the Bible. Next, let's talk about myth number two. The Bible is too boring to study. We're going to be looking at verses 9 to 12, starting with verse 9. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. So as Ezra read and the small group leaders explained the word of God, the congregation's first response was one of conviction and grief. The natural reaction to the Bible is guilt. The people wept because they knew they had been neglecting God's word. Another reason they were broken up is because their hearts were convicted by what they heard. As Romans 3.20 says, the law simply shows us how sinful we are. The ministry of scripture caused them to see the beauty of God and the ugliness of their own hearts. Though weeping is necessary and it's important, it's not the final message God has for us. Assisted by the Levites, Nehemiah convinced the people to stop mourning and start celebrating. The word of God brings conviction and it leads to repentance, but it also brings us joy for the same word that wounds also heals. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, When I discovered your words, I devoured them. They are my joy and my heart's delight. Psalm 19, verse 8 says, The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. Friends, it is as wrong to mourn when God has forgiven us as it is to rejoice when sin has conquered us. Grief for sin and joy in God's forgiveness are not far from each other. The God who convicts of sin is the God of grace and mercy. It isn't enough for us to just read the word or receive the word as others explain it. We must also rejoice in the word. Look at verses 10 through 12. It says, Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Verse 12, Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Did you catch that? 
When people understand the word of God, it brings them joy. We can have joy because God has found a solution to the sin problem. Notice how the people are urged to share what they have with others. This is significant in light of what we learned in chapter 5 when the rich were taking advantage of the poor. When we understand God through understanding his word, we will have a contagious joy as we invite others to experience the same thing. As someone has once said, joy is magnified when it's shared. That's one of the points Nehemiah makes. Eat something good, drink something sweet, and give some to people who don't have any. This is a sacred day, so be joyful. Reverence and rejoicing go together. Philemon 6 challenges us to put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. We can't have true joy unless we share what we have with others. Friends, the Bible and the truths within are far from dry and boring. If we understand scripture, we will come to see the place of joy. Every effort to make Christianity seem sad, heavy, strict, and boring falls short. The people who know the story of redemption the best are the freest, the most joyful, and the least likely to keep it to themselves. Let me give you a couple of ways to demolish the second myth so that you can rejoice in what you understand from the Bible. First, instead of focusing on how you've messed up, draw your attention to what God has done on your behalf. Some of you are crippled with guilt and you're paralyzed with shame. If you've confessed it, the Bible says you are forgiven and free. It is time for you to move on with joy. Isaiah 44:22 is a great verse to treasure if you're struggling with guilt and shame. It says, I have swept away your sins like a cloud. I have scattered your offenses like the morning mist. Oh, return to me, for I have paid the price to set you free. Isn't that awesome? And number two, look for ways to share what you have with others. Maybe you can provide a meal for someone after church or during the week. Take them out to eat or maybe bring them a meal. Ask God to give you an opportunity this week to share your joy with somebody that he places on your heart. You can do this, beloved, because it is joyful and that myth is gone. So the truth of the matter is the Bible is not too boring to study and it brings great joy. Myth number three is the Bible is impossible to apply. Look at verses 13 to 18. This myth says that God is just out to make life miserable for us by giving us things to do that are unattainable. While it's certainly true that we can't obey everything in the Bible because of our sinfulness, we can live out its truths and principles on a daily basis. In fact, God's word was given in order to transform our lives. We don't have to make the Bible relevant because it already is. Our challenge is to follow what we know to be true as we ask the Holy Spirit to empower us and to fill us. As James 1, to 25 reminds us, it's not enough to just hear the word of God. We must do what it tells us to do as well. Matthew Henry, a Bible commentator, once wrote, Holy joy is oil to the wheels of our obedience. Isn't that great? To the believer without joy, the will of God is drudgery. But to the believer who is strengthened by the joy of the Lord, the will of God is nourishment. In verses 13 through 18, we see how the Israelites found great joy in their obedience. As they paid attention to what was heard, take a look at verse 14. As they paid attention to what they heard, it says that they discovered they had not fully been following the Lord in all areas. While they had celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles at different times in their history, they were supposed to set up booths made out of branches. 
They were doing part of what God wanted, but they weren't following all the directions. There are times in my life when my problem isn't that I'm not following the Lord, it's that I'm not obeying Him completely. The Feast of Tabernacles, or often referred to as the Feast of Booths, was a reminder that they were called as people out of Egypt. When they got into the desert, God told them to collect branches and limbs of trees in order to have shelter. God then told them to do this every year, even when they had their homes to dwell in. God told them to live in temporary shelters or booths for a week. They were to go out, fetch some branches and sticks, and make booths for their families to live in. They may have wondered why this was so important, especially since the wall was now complete. Sambalat and Tobiah may have just shaken their heads in amazement. They made fun of the wall's construction, and now the people were busy building little shacks. These little lean-tos were scattered all over Jerusalem. There were three main purposes for this festival. It was a time for looking back and remembering the nation's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness when the people were homeless and they lived in temporary shelters. It helped them remember where they had come from and how far God had brought them. This fall festival, as it were, was also a time for looking around at the harvest blessings from the hand of God. The Feast of Tabernacles was also an occasion for looking ahead. These believers may have been tempted to get comfortable with the new city and their new homes, but the Word of God says, Remember, your home is not in this world. You are always going to be pilgrims here. Your home is in heaven. After the walls were up, God wanted to make sure that they didn't count on the walls, but instead counted on Him. We need that reminder. Don't sink your roots too deep into this world, my friends, because your true home is in heaven. As the people applied God's truth, they did it with an attitude of joy. Look at the end of verse 17. It says, And their joy was very great. When God gives you insight, no matter how strange or difficult it appears to be, cultivate an attitude of complete commitment and unreserved obedience. When you obey Him, you'll have the deep satisfaction that you are doing the right thing, no matter how hard it is. And if we're truly people of the book, we will live by the book. Let me suggest to you three action steps that will help you develop an application orientation to the Word of God. The Bible is not impossible to apply. You can obey it. Number one, pray and ask God for a personal transformation as you read and understand the Bible. Ask Him to reveal what it is that He wants you to do as a result of what you're reading or what you're hearing. Avoid the temptation to just study the Bible, compiling information as if that's the only goal. Expect to hear something that God wants you to apply. Number two, when God reveals something to you, don't put it off. Don't bargain with God. Don't go halfway. Don't settle for spiritual mediocrity. Determine to be obedient. And number three, ask someone to hold you accountable. When you know what God wants you to do and you're not sure if you're going to be able to do it on your own, ask for help. So once again, the truth of the matter is, the Bible is not impossible to apply. I hope by now any misconceptions or myths that you may have about the Bible have been put to rest. Nehemiah demolished some popular myths about the Word of God in chapter 8, and his words still ring true today. Many people believe the Bible is too confusing to read. No, it's not. It's actually a book that you can comprehend. You can understand it. Many people believe the Bible is too dry and boring to study. No, it's not. When one actually reads the Bible, you'll find it's anything but dull, so you can understand it, you can rejoice in it. Many people believe the Bible is impossible to apply. No, it is not. 
It is the most culturally relevant book in existence, and there are many ways you can apply its truth so you can obey it. It was a bright Sunday morning in 28th century London when Robert Robinson's mood was anything but sunny. All along the street there were people hurrying to church, but in the midst of the crowd Robinson was a lonely man. The sound of church bells reminded him of years past when his faith in God was strong and the church was an integral part of his life. It had been years since he set foot in a church, years of wandering, disillusionment, and gradual defection from the God he once loved. That love for God, once fiery and passionate, had slowly burned out within him, leaving him dark and cold inside. Robinson heard a clip-clop, clip-clop of a horse-drawn cab approaching behind him. Turning, he lifted his hand to hail the driver, but then he saw the cab was occupied by a young woman dressed in her Sunday best. He waved the driver on, but the woman in the carriage ordered the carriage to be stopped. Sir, I'd be happy to share this carriage with you. Are you going to church? Robinson was about to decline, but then he paused. Yes, he said at last. I'm going to church. He stepped into the carriage and sat down beside the young woman. As the carriage rolled forward, Robert Robinson and the woman exchanged introductions. There was a flash of recognition in her eyes when he stated his name. That's an interesting coincidence, she said, reaching into her purse. She withdrew a small book of poems, opened it to a ribbon bookmark, and handed him the book. I was just reading a verse by a poet named Robert Robinson. Could it be? He took the book, nodding. Yes, I wrote those words years ago. Oh, how wonderful, she exclaimed. Imagine, I'm sharing a carriage with the author of these very lines. But Robinson barely heard her. He was absorbed in the words that he was reading. They were words that one day would be set to music and become a great hymn of faith, familiar to many generations of Christians. Come now, fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. His eyes slipped to the bottom of the page where he read, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. He could barely read the last few lines through the tears that brimmed in his eyes. I wrote these words, and I live these words, prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. The woman suddenly understood. You also wrote, here's my heart, O take and seal it. She said, you can offer your heart again to God, Mr. Robinson. It's not too late. And it wasn't too late for Robert Robinson. In that moment, he turned his heart back to God, and he walked with him the rest of his days. My friends, it is not too late for you. Are you ready to turn your heart back to God right now? If you've never given your heart over to Jesus, would you be willing to trust him with yours right now? If you are, then I pray that you would just ask God in these moments right now to forgive you of your sins to state what you know, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and receive him today as your Lord and Savior. And then would you be baptized into Jesus, immersed under the water, and would you continue to rise up out of that water and live a life for God? You can do this, beloved. It's not too late. The question is, will you now? Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. 
To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.